Um, I want to talk to you about something a little bit less horrific than Brexit, which is depression. So, uh, for a really long time, there were these two kind of mysteries that were really hanging over me, right? And if I'm honest, I was a bit frightened to, to look into them. The first mystery is, I'm 40 years old, and every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased here in Britain, in the US, across the entire Western world. And I wanted to understand why? Why are so many of us finding it so hard to get through the day? And why is it going up year after year after year? And I wanted to understand that partly because of a more personal mystery. When I was a teenager, I went to my doctor. And I remember saying that I had this feeling like pain was kind of leaking out of me. I couldn't control it. I couldn't regulate it. I didn't understand why it was happening. And my doctor told me a story that I now realize isn't totally wrong, but was really oversimplified. So my doctor said, we know why people feel like this. Some people just naturally have something wrong with their brains. They've naturally got a kind of chemical imbalance. You're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you this drug, in my case it was called Siroxat, to get you back to normal chemical levels. So I started taking the drug and I felt really significantly better. I got a quite substantial boost. And a few months later, this feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back to my doctor. He said, clearly, I didn't give you a high enough dose. It gave me a higher dose. Again, I felt a genuine boost. Again, the feeling of pain came back. And I was really in this cycle until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose you're allowed to take. At the end of which, I felt like shit. And I was asking myself, well, I'm doing everything I'm being told to do, according to the story that I hear around me, according to what my doctor is telling me. Why do I, I still feel like this? So to try to get to the bottom of these two mysteries for my book, Lost Connections, I ended up going on a big, long journey. I ended up going over 40,000 miles. I wanted to sit with the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them, and just people with really different perspectives, from <clears throat> an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would help, to a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people psychedelics to see if that helped, ask me afterwards. And <laughs> I learned loads of things. But the heart of what I learned is there's scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety that we know about. Two of them are indeed in our biology. That's very real. Your genes can make you more sensitive to these things. And there are real brain changes that happen when you become depressed that make it harder to get out. But most of the factors that cause depression, for which there's really strong evidence, are not in our biology. They're factors in the way we live. And once you understand them, it opens up a very different set of solutions that I saw in practice all over the world that we should be putting into place alongside the option of chemical antidepressants. So one thing connects a lot, not all of the causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about. Everyone in this room knows Obviously, you have natural physical needs, right? You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be, obviously, you'd be screwed really quickly, right? But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. 
You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And there's loads of great things about this culture that we've built, right? I went to the dentist yesterday. Believe me, I'm glad to be alive in 2019. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep, underlying psychological needs that people have. And it's not the only thing that's going on, but, it, but it's, it's the reason why it's rising more and more. I think the evidence on that is pretty clear. And I found this quite hard to get my head around when it was first explained to me, and it only really began to fall into place for me when I went to interview a South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield, who told me a story. So Derek happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for people in that country. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, had never heard of these drugs. They were like, what are they? And so he explained. And they said, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy, like St. John's wort or Ginkgo biloba, something like that. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine left over from the American War and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial leg and a few months later he goes back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's really painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial leg. I'm guessing it was pretty traumatic. He's going back to where he got blown up. The guy started to cry all day, refused to get out of bed. He developed classic depression. That's when the Cambodian doctor said, oh, this is when we gave him an antidepressant. And Dr. Summerfield said, what? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. It wasn't some, just some biological malfunction. It had causes. One of them had an idea. They said, you know what? If, if we bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. It never came back. They said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're, dep if you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not in the main a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love and practical help to get those needs met. So a big thing I was asking is, okay, what's the cow for the things that are screwing us up, right? And obviously I learned a huge amount of this and I, I go through a lot in the book, but I just want to give you one example of one of the causes of depression and anxiety that will be playing out for loads of people here and one of the cows that emerged from the science of understanding it. So we are the loneliest society in human history. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends have you got who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it ages ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. There are more people who have nobody to turn to than any other option. And we are just behind the Americans in the international league tables of loneliness. And I think it's not a coincidence we're having similar political problems to them. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to a man called Professor John Cassiopo, who's at the University of Chicago, who was the leading expert in the world on loneliness. i never forget, he said to me, why are we alive? Why do we exist? All of us in this room, why are we here? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. 
They weren't bigger than the animals they took down a lot of the time. They weren't faster than the animals they took down. But they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. That has always been our superpower as a species. We are the first humans ever to disband our tribes. Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. And we're trying to cast our tribes aside, to tell ourselves stories that we can and should do it alone. And Professor Cassiopo proved loneliness is a massive driver of depression. And of course, we know there's loads of evidence loneliness has massively increased. This is a, a key factor. And when I first learned that, it felt a bit overwhelming, to be honest, because I was like, well, God, what do we do about that? But actually, one of the heroes of my book is an incredible man who's from not very far from here, Dr. Sam Everington, who, who pioneered a solution that's now spreading all over the world. So Sam was really uncomfortable. He's a GP uh, in Bromley by Bow. Uh, and Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they have some positive role to play. But he could see a couple of things. Firstly, most of the people he gave antidepressants to did become depressed again, like me. And these people were depressed for perfectly understandable reasons, like loneliness, to name one. So one day, Sam decided to try something different. A woman came to see him, who I got to know later, called Lisa Cunningham. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to try something else. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. It was like scrubland where dogs would go shit. And um, Sam said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and turn out a couple of times a week at Dog Shit Alley. I'm going to come too because I've been really depressed. We're going to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people. And together, we're going to figure something out, something to do together. Figure out something to do together so we won't be lonely and we won't feel life is meaningless. The first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. She started vomiting. But the group kind of comforted her, and they started chatting. They're like, what could we do? These are inner-city East London people like me. They did not know anything about gardening. They were like, you know what? We could make this into a garden. So they started getting books out of the library. They started watching YouTube clips. They started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. But something even more important started to happen. They started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. They started to care about each other. If one person didn't turn up, the others would go and look for them and make sure they were okay. They did what human beings do when we were in tribes. They started to solve each other's problems. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for an obvious reason, and this is something I saw all over the world, from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco, the most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with why we're in such pain in the first place. There was another person who helped me to think about this uh, in relation to that, a woman, incredible woman in Arizona called Dr. Joanne Cassiatore, who told me something that never occurred to me before. She said, have you ever noticed that depression and grief have identical symptoms. They are clinically indistinguishable, right? Think about it, you cry a lot, you don't wanna get out of bed, you feel hopeless about the future. Um, and I thought about that a lot and I started asking myself, what if in some sense depression is a form of grief? What if it's a form of grief 
for your own life not turning out how it should? What if it's a form of grief for your own deepest needs as a human being not being met? Now, when we're grieving for someone we love, we can't bring that person back. We can honor their life. We can, we can hold the survivors. But if you're grieving for yourself, if we are grieving for ourselves, there's a lot we can do about that, right? A huge amount. We can change the way we live together. But to do that, I think we have to change how we think about depression itself, right? I, I realized I had been making a quite basic mistake. For the longest time, so I want to stress again, there are real biological contribu contributions to depression and anxiety. But if the biology takes over the whole story, right, if it crowds out the overwhelming scientific evidence that there are social and psychological causes of depression, anxiety, I've only mentioned one, there's loads more, then what that says, if biology is the entire picture, what that says to people is your pain doesn't mean anything, right? It's like a glitch in a computer program. But the main thing I learned is we need to stop thinking of our pain that way. Depression is not a glitch. Depression is a signal. It's telling us something. It's rising because the way we are living is not meeting our deepest needs as human beings. And I realized what I did for so long, I was only able to change my life when I changed this way of thinking. What I had been doing for so long was ignoring this signal that I was receiving, right? I'd either been saying, oh, it's a sign that you're weak, or it's a sign that you're losing it, or, you know, it's just a sign you've got some faulty internal wiring. Um, and, 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 and I had to realize that's not true. Your pain makes sense. You feel this way for reasons. Those reasons are entirely understandable. There's, in fact, really good scientific evidence about how we can figure out what they are. And we can fix those reasons. That is the meaningful and sustainable path out of depression. So I think what we need to start doing as a society, as a culture, is stop insulting these signals. Stop saying that people need to man up. Stop saying they're just a problem in your brain, although they are, in addition, a problem in your brain. We need to start listening to this pain and honoring it and taking it seriously. Because it's only when we listen this, to this pain, when we follow it to its root, that we can see the deepest solutions, the cows that are waiting all around us. Thanks very much. <laughs>